0: Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Quick solo pod tonight. Just want to get some thoughts out. I haven't really talked about any of the 2021-22 NBA rookies, at least at length, on any episodes of this podcast since the season started. So I wanted to get some thoughts out about a few of these guys. Not obviously the entire rookie class, but I wanted to get some thoughts out on some really positive performances that I've seen from a few rookies. I want to point out a few negatives that we've seen of late and are these negatives that I think will continue to carry over not only just through this season but going more into year two and year three of these young players careers. Do I think a lot of these things are correctable and some of these players still have the same, if not more, upside than they had when we were evaluating them coming into this draft. I just want to unpack a few um, a few points that I want to make on this podcast about a few players here. So very, very quick, very painless podcast. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the No Ceiling Substack, we are popping off over there. We're getting so much support, so much love, especially over the last few days. Trust me when I say that a lot more Many more exciting things are to come for the No Ceilings newsletter, the Substack, everything we're doing over on the YouTube channel, everything we're doing with all of our podcasts. Again, Draft Deeper is just one podcast on the network. Corey and Albert just released a new episode of the Draft Act today. We're recording this on November 18th. Obviously, NBA Deep Dives is going off with Tyler Metcalf and and Nick. They're doing a fantastic job on their own front. They released a new episode this week. I'll be recording a new episode of the No Ceilings podcast with Tyler Rucker and Tyler Metcalf tonight. Hopefully, we'll be getting that out in short order as well, focusing on some young NBA point guard play and some developmental tracks for a few of the younger point guards in the league, kind of going off of the piece that Tyler Rucker put out on the No Ceilings substack. And if you've already been subscribed to our newsletter, then you know exactly the piece that I'm talking about it was fantastic work by him. And so Metcalf and I, we kind of wanted to expound upon that a little bit with Tyler and and, and unpack a few thoughts that we might have for some of the young floor generals in the league. But with that being said, let's jump right into this talk. So we'll start at the top. We'll start with the number one overall pick, Cade Cunningham, got off to a little bit of a slow start, is actually still getting off to a little bit of a slow start this season. He did come in with an injury. He didn't start the year for the Detroit Pistons, but now that he has been playing since around Halloween – He's been averaging 30 minutes per game for the team, 13.4 points per game, five and a half rebounds, 3.6 assists, shooting splits, 34.8% from the field, 27.6% from three-point range, 92.9% from the free throw line, a steal a game, just under half a block a game, 3.6 turnovers per game, all equaling out to an 8.6 PER and a 45.3 true shooting percentage. Now understand when I go through a lot of these statistics – that I'm going to go through today for these prospects both the more traditional basketball reference numbers as well as some of the synergy percentiles that I'm going to bring up today I don't love looking at a lot of these statistics for rookie players because the numbers are not going to look good right they're just they're just never going to be up to snuff with the statistics of a player who might be in his third year in the NBA or his fourth year. They're just they're, they're they're not going to be able to be compared properly because these guys are just getting their feet wet in the toughest professional basketball league that there is. You can't expect perfection, especially at an advanced level from a rookie player. You just can't. So keep that in mind when I read off some of these numbers, but also bear in mind I just said that about some of the poor statistics to – not hold these prospects or these players, I should say, hold their feet to the fire for some of these poor numbers, but also definitely encourage and highlight what one of these numbers does jump out at you. And there are definitely some numbers that are going to jump out at you as they go through some of these players a little later on in this podcast, but we'll take a look at some synergy profiles for Kate. So 12th percentile in total offense, fourth percentile in total defense. Yes, there, there are no zeros, behind those numbers it's it's the 12th percentile on offense fourth percentile on defense 60th percentile on offense and spot ups 15th percentile in pick and roll scoring as well as in transition 20th percentile on jumpers 44th percentile finishing around the basket 33rd percentile on catch and shoot looks 12th percentile all jump shots off the dribble so Obviously, a lot of my takeaways can't just be built exclusively off the numbers. So let's get into some things that I've definitely noticed as I'm going back and watching the film. So first off, I'm really impressed with Cade's demeanor and his understanding on both ends. He plays at a really good pace when he has the ball in his hands. He understands how to make plays out of pick and roll. He does a good job of reading the defense before he uses the screen to scan his options in front of him before getting ahead of himself once he does accept the screen. That A lot of those things are really important for pick and roll play you need to not necessarily just accept the screen right away and immediately thrust yourself downhill into a team of defenders obviously when you do have the 6 foot 8 size that allows you to have better court vision over your opposing matchup especially if you're one of those bigger point guards who likely has somebody smaller guarding you it means you have a much clearer view of everything else going on to you around the court It's much easier for you to be able to scan, navigate, and notice everything else that the defense is doing before you just thrust yourself in there and expect to make a decision at the drop of a hat when you don't necessarily have all of the experience doing that at the NBA level quite yet. So you definitely do like to see some of that from Cade early on. We knew knew he had the playmaking chops coming in. He was always touted as a high-level passer going back to his high school days at Montverde. We definitely saw a lot of his leadership from a passing perspective at Oklahoma state. We have started to see a lot of that in particular, some of Cade's last few games here in the NBA. I like that the Pistons are doing a better job of late, actually putting the ball in Cade's hands and letting him go to work with it. He, he's not the type of player who should be operating a ton without the basketball. He's a table setter, playmaker, and then a scorer. right? So in regards to the Cade, Killian Hayes backcourt. I liked it before the draft, and I thought it was a fit that could work because they both have plus positional size regardless of where you play them. They can both handle the ball. They can both make plays for others, and they can both hit open perimeter shots. So all of those aspects to it are nice, but Killian has not found the same rhythm in the NBA quite yet in terms of his balance scoring versus distributing From that point guard spot, he settles for a ton of bad jumpers. He generally does not force his way to the rim nearly as many times as he should. And when he doesn't properly put pressure penetrating the defense, that doesn't exactly open things up for everyone else. As opposed to when Kate has the ball in his hands, he's much more comfortable getting downhill, much better at actually getting all the way down to the basket by the rim that unlocks a much better drive and kick game than what I've seen from Killian Hayes on a consistent basis. So I really think that Cade Cunningham needs to have the ball in his hands a lot more often. You can just tell when you you flip the film on, the Pistons are a much more comfortable offensive team when Cade's at the helm because he is a calm decision maker. He doesn't let the defense rush him. He, in turn, doesn't get worried about anything a defense is going to throw at him. He's calm. He's composed. He's collected. And he's just one of those guys that, yes, some of the shot making and some of the other things on offense haven't fully translated quite yet. But you at least know that eventually he's going to be a pretty primetime playmaker in the NBA because of some of the things we've already seen from film early on. I talked about some of the scoring. The shooting stroke's going to be fine. He has sound mechanics, as I noted. Um, heavily by the free throw percentage up to this point. Again, he's shooting 92.9% from the free throw line, so I'm really not concerned there. It's really about the shot selection and timing on his jump shots. Like I, I like when he's aggressive at looking to get to the rim as well. Again, like I said, because it opens up the driving kick game. But he has to maintain that aggressiveness and keep getting downhill to balance some of those poor jump shots that he has a tendency to settle for off the bounce whether it's inside or beyond the arc he definitely has to do a much better job of balancing out all of that defensively i was always really intrigued by Cade as a unique weapon who could guard one through feet one through three obviously has good understanding and awareness on that end of the floor he could kind of be a rover like a defensive type of playmaker he does sit in a nice stance he keeps his hands up head on a swivel, he's attentive to what's going on around him. The biggest thing with Cade, it comes comes to bite him in certain situations on offense. When I talked about when he does get to the basket, his physicality, or, or lack thereof, I should say, the lack of bulk on his body, his lack of strength definitely inhibits him at times from actually finishing the play at the rim when he does look to go up and score. But on defensively, he, defensively, he does get caught in some screens and is unable to fight through them at times, forcing a bad switch and having him get caught up in a battle of size, which physically he's not ready yet to win that battle consistently. He also isn't someone you want contesting and helping defend around the basket on a play-by-play basis. As a perimeter defender, right now he's, he's pretty at home guarding the one through three. He's definitely capable. But yeah, his body's really the only thing I'm concerned about up to this point. His lack of strength holds him back in situations on both ends. That's really going to be the big thing to monitor moving forward. Obviously, that's not something that's going to be corrected immediately in his rookie season. He's likely going to take, you know, another year or two after this to properly physically mature and fill out. And we'll see what happens once he does get to a point physically where he can handle more responsibility on both ends. If he does hit that point, he will be a prolifically good basketball player. Likely a great one and could even rise to be an excellent one. I'm not going to put a ceiling on Cade Cunningham. I didn't want to put a ceiling on him before the draft. When you really break down everything he can do at his size with the ball in his hands, he really, really, really does remind you of that that Luka Doncic, Jason Tatum type of player. That was really my, my best comp that I could come up with. He's, he was this really weird mix of the two, I feel like he he's definitely taken different skills, different tactics from both players. But that's that's the type of scary upside combination that Cade has. For, from a speed standpoint, I think he's actually looked fine on the court. I don't think he's looked much slower, if, if at all slower, than the competition he's been going up against on a night-to-night basis. So I'm really not that much worried about that part of his athletic ability anymore. He doesn't need to be this crazy jump out of the gym athlete he he can definitely um finish over the defense when he has enough time to take off off two feet so again he doesn't have to be this crazy vertical player it doesn't have to be this blinding quick player because of his size because of some of his craft that he's continuing to develop on the offensive end it's about how he can fill out how much stronger can he get what's his body going to look like two three years down the road from now that to me is what will really determine his ultimate upside in the NBA um, and the most recent game I was able to watch of Cade was against Davion Mitchell and the Sacramento Kings Davion Mitchell 26.3 minutes per game 9.6 points per game 2.4 rebounds 3.9 assists 40% shooting from the field almost 30% from three-point range almost 64% from the free throw line, shooting splits are not great by any means, averaging 0.7 steals per game, 0.3 blocks, 1.1 turnovers, a 10 and a half PER, and a 47.2 true shooting percentage. Let's take a look at some of the synergy stats. 24th percentile in total offense, 61st percentile in terms of total defense. Obviously a much better defensive guard at this point than an offensive threat, I think almost anyone could have predicted that if they watched him close enough at Baylor although he has been pretty good for for a young player at this point coming into the league out of pick and roll 60th percentile in terms of pick and roll scoring 42nd percentile in spot ups and transition only in the 9th percentile in terms of isolation scoring 56th percentile in pick and rolls including passes only the 18th percentile in jump shots 78th percentile finishing around the basket, 16th percentile in catch-and-shoot looks, 27th percentile of jump shots off the dribble. So the numbers actually do give you a pretty good picture of what you could expect from Davion Mitchell offensively right now. He's a very much so downhill attacking type of guard. He's best when he does get a screen up top so he can properly navigate the defense. He doesn't have to worry about some guy or a bigger matchup, I should say, constantly hounding him one-on-one on that end because when that is the case, he does not he does not do well scoring out of those sets. I didn't include um, the isolations, including passes number, but that percentile, what I can't remember if it wasn't good either or he didn't even register enough possessions in isolations, including passes, to get a proper percentile ranking. It was one of the two. But either way, when you get him one-on-one On an island, he's not. He hasn't shown that same level of shot creation against NBA defenders than he did at college. And some people definitely pointed to that. Part of it was that people were just concerned about the shooting overall; that it wouldn't translate. He was never a good free throw shooter from the foul line in college. He really only had like one and a half years of standout three point shooting at the college level. Was it all definitely going to come together and translate so far? That answer from an efficiency and volume standpoint is no, but he does have examples on film where he's gotten to some of his old spots that he loved to get to at Baylor. And he does hit some of those tough pull-up shots that we we ended up growing accustomed to to seeing from him in big time games, including the national championship game where it seemed like Davion was just hitting every single pull-up jump shot that he looked at. So I'm not ready to completely write him off in some of those tougher shooting aspects, but the numbers, at least to this point, definitely don't bear out well for him. But let's let's talk about the defense. 82nd percentile defending isolation, 69th percentile defending pick and roll, 67th percentile defending in jumpers, and 97th percentile defending runners. He holds himself up well, really, up until you get about five feet and in to the basket, that's sort of where some of his defense falls off. I mean, we know he's only six foot tall. He has a good build to him for that six-foot height, but he's not the biggest in matchups. So if you get him close enough to the basket, you're a bigger guard, six four to six six. You're going to be able to score over him if you can get him that deep into the post. But if he's able to keep you outside of five feet from the basket, he is the scrappiest guard I've ever seen come into the league and be able to bother so many players from that aspect from day one. I haven't seen anything like this from a defender in his first few months in the NBA. It's it's absolutely absurd how good Davion Mitchell is at the point of attack. I know I was listening to uh, a Dunker Spot episode where Nikaias Duncan was just absolutely raving about Davion Mitchell. He was in love with his point of attack defense. Yeah, the only compliments at this point pretty much can be given to Davion Mitchell defensively. He's aware of everything that goes on around him. Some of the quickest hands I've ever seen, whether it's poking the ball free one-on-one, slapping the ball away as a helper on a drive and contest. He's challenging everything and he loves it. He's willing to do anything the team needs defensively. He'll take on any matchup. He'll sacrifice his body to take any charge. The effort and the intensity that Davion Mitchell brings on every single play defensively. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. He will be a mainstay in this Kings guard rotation for years to come, unless he's thrown in some sort of trade package that we have no idea what that looks like yet. But right now, it looks like he loves being in Sacramento. He loves playing with the guys that he is. It looks like the Kings love him. It's funny when De'Aaron Fox isn't on the floor and it's Davion and Tyrese Halliburton sharing the court together, they play off of each other so well. I feel like their skill sets much better complement each other than Davion and De'Aaron Fox, for example, because both of them like to get downhill. They both like to attack. They're both not the most efficient pull-up jump shooters. Tyrese Halliburton has proven to be an efficient pull-up jump shooter from inside the arc or beyond it. So if you're pairing him with Davion Mitchell especially given the passing craft that both of them have. Like, like Davion isn't a next level passer. Like he's not somebody you want playing the point guard position full time, but he's not a ball hog. He is a willing passer when he's able to actually see and go through his progressions. He can pass out of pick and roll. Tyrese is the much more creative ball mover. He's the guy who does the, the, the whip arounds, the, the, the corner hits, the hit aheads. All of that stuff comes from Tyrese. So when those two share the core together, I actually really like the fit. And Tyrese, Tyrese is not as bad of a defender as some of the numbers might might indicate at times. I know that he wasn't exactly the most sound guard defender as a rookie, but I think he's improved this year in some of the Kings film that I've seen. And when you when you have that kind of tandem that just meshes so well offensively and defensively, it, it really does make you wonder how much the Kings actually love De'Aaron Fox, how much they really want to have him around for the future, or do they move him in some big package? Like the Kings have been rumored for so long to be involved in the Ben Simmons conversations. I really wonder I really wonder if De'Aaron Fox is definitely here for the long term and they continue to build around him, or if they might see Davion and, and Halliburton as a much more comfortable fit in the backcourt. Now... Some people might be expecting me to bring up another name with this big man. We're gonna move along to the third overall pick in the draft, Evan Mobley. He's at this point in a pretty neck and neck race with Scotty Barnes for rookie of the year, at least very early on in the season. I'm not going to talk about Scotty Barnes on this podcast. If you want to read up on more of my thoughts about Scotty Barnes. Tyler Rucker and I did a phenomenal piece over on the no ceiling Substack. Yes. Another plug for no ceilings. We wrote a phenomenal back and forth piece, very conversational about our thoughts about Scotty Barnes from what we saw pre-draft to kind of get some of Rucker's more intimate thoughts on, on where he stood on Barnes pre-draft. We moved into what we've liked for Barnes offensively and defensively in the NBA and, what he may be able to do to solidify himself in the rookie of the year race. We gave all of those thoughts in one Substack article. If you haven't subscribed to the No Ceilings Substack yet, definitely go check out my social media handle on Twitter, at Draft Deeper. Go check out Tyler's at Backcourt V. Check out anyone who's been involved with No Ceilings up to this point. All the links are always shared on our social media. So absolutely read that piece. But I will talk about Evan Mobley on this podcast because I haven't said enough good things about him. He's been phenomenal. He's been playing a huge role for this Cavs team. Essentially, when he's in the game, when he's in the lineup for the night, he starts. He's been playing thirty-three point seven minutes per game, fourteen point six points per game, eight rebounds, two and a half assists per game, forty-nine percent from the field, almost thirty-one percent from three-point range, seventy-seven percent from the free throw line. Those are a shooting splits perfectly fine for a rookie. One steal, one point six blocks per game, one point eight turnovers per game a 16.9 per and a 55 and a half true shooting percentage. Synergy numbers 58th percentile in terms of total offense, 30th percentile in total defense, 86th percentile in post ups, 81st percentile in offense, scoring out of offensive rebounds, 68th percentile in transition, 57th on cuts, 15th in pick and roll scoring as the roll man, 12th on spot ups. 75th in isolations, including passes, 62nd in post-ups, including passes, 49th on jumpers, 29th around the basket, 34th in catch-and-shoot offense, 76th percentile on all jump shots off the dribble. and then I'll have a few defensive numbers that, that I'll give you as well. But let's stop right there and talk about some of the offense. The spacing Mobley provides is a good thing for any team but the gravity he commands because of his ability to take his man off the dribble and make plays is terrifying for other teams. That's what makes him special offensively. That's what everyone wanted to point to before the 2021 draft. When you had people like me openly voicing their opinions about his lack of assertiveness at times, his lack of scoring aggressiveness. He wasn't somebody who was taking over games, taking 18 to 20 shots per game but it's the elite level playmaking, the distribution, the ball movement, the ability to handle the ball, penetrate the defense, run inverted pick and rolls. All of these different things that you saw examples of at the college level are what makes Mobley so special and what made him such a valuable NBA commodity and why teams definitely didn't want to let him fall any further than number three in the draft. There are going to be plenty of arguments, matter of fact, There already are that Mobley should have been the first or even the second pick in the 2021 draft. I'm going to pump those breaks a little bit. Let's give Cade some time. Let's give Jalen Green some time. But right now there is no question that Mobley will without a doubt be one of the most impactful rookies from this 2021 class. Going back to his passing a little bit, I really wish there was more available stat tracking for the common man for hockey assists because Mobley would be right up there with the best of them. He just encourages so much healthy ball movement and is such a valuable connector on this Cavs team. Now defensively, I think he does need to recognize situations better in which he needs to close out and contest, but that will come more with time because he has the speed to get to where he needs to go at least which is incredibly valuable for a big his size, right? It's one thing, even if a big man recognizes how to switch, when to switch, where to close out, when to close out. But if they're heavy footed, they don't have the quickness and the speed to get there and actually properly contest those shots, then some of it's sort of a lost cause, right? Mobley can make up for some of the late recognitions because he literally is that quick at times when he's sprinting the court, especially in transition going on the offensive end, man, he looks like an athletic freak out there. He is so fast for a seven footer. So yes, his elite length, his speed at his size, he can properly get out and contest a lot of shots and even block some of them that other big men who are more heavy footed than him could only dream of impacting in the same way. But like I said, that, that that's one of the only minor flaws that I really see in his defensive game besides obviously his body. He's going to need to bulk up and definitely fill out a little more, but the rim protection and the defensive rebounding he provides because of his vertical leaping ability is tremendous between his verticality as well as his size and length. He can just go up and swat or grab balls that few others can, and that may sound unfair, to to some fans out there but that's just the god's honest truth he can just do things that other big men simply can't do because of his god's given ability and also like like i had mentioned offensively his quickness south to north slipping off screens and getting to the rim is absolutely insane i would love for him to to learn to set more physical screens and absorb some contact before slipping as i think it would open up more shooting opportunities for garland sexton etc. But good things do happen when he has a free laner can stop on the short roll and keep the ball moving or square up for the jumper that he shoots really well off the bounce. I I did read off that percentile he was in the 76 percentile on jump shots off the dribble that's that's pretty unique the touch he has offensively is pretty special the hooks fall away touch shots pull up jumpers finger rolls all of these are so coordinated and special for someone his size. And once he becomes more comfortable on a catch-and-shoot looks, his scoring averages will take another step forward. Then you start to to layer and get into the line more frequently as it continues to, to fill out and get stronger. We could really be looking at the next Anthony Davis level big offensively. And if you were a frequent listener of this podcast during the 2021 draft cycle, you knew that in some aspects... I was a little more down on Evan Mobley than others, but I was also one of the people at the forefront screaming that this kid needed to be on an Anthony Davis type of development path. If you're going to see Mobley's ultimate outcome happen, Anthony Davis is is what it's going to resemble because really to me, I thought the main difference between the two in terms of their games was that Anthony Davis in the NBA, and even going back to college, but especially so in the NBA in this later part of his NBA career, he has been such a good post player when he's actually wanted to back somebody down on the low block. I didn't see that at least coming this quickly from Mobley, but now that he is able to get good post position or create and develop post position, he's really good at facing guys up off of an initial move going and going to shoot over either shoulder. The fact that he's already displaying some of that, he is not getting pushed off of every single spot. Every single time he, he looks to make a move to the low block, he's not always getting pushed off by the opposing defender. These are very encouraging signs for Mobley moving forward. I cannot wait to see him continue develop down low, as well as obviously away from the basket, everything he brings to the table on that end. He's a more fluid ball handler than Anthony Davis. He's a better passer than Anthony Davis. The upside that Mobley has is absolutely scary, and I told you that I wanted to get to to three other defensive percentiles before we move along. 75th percentile defending isolations, 50th percentile defending out of pick-and-roll sets, only the 9th percentile defending catch-and-shoot shots. That really goes back to what I was talking about, better recognizing some closeout situations, but I think that number will certainly improve, if not, not even at some point this year, definitely by next year, I think those percentages will definitely come up. But the 75th percentile defending isolations, that that number jumps out to me because when you get Mobley one-on-one on an island, he's not letting anybody push him around physically. He's properly staying in front of his man. He's not overly fouling and he's utilizing his timing and his length to properly contest shots. It's, it's an absolute joy to watch Mobley on both ends of the floor. I can't believe that I'm coming away this impressed with him so early on in his NBA career. But here we are. Hats off to Evan Mobley. You are definitely, at least to this point, one of the two best rookies in this class. We'll see if that thought bears itself out over the course of three to four to five years. But right now, you have absolutely earned every amount of praise that you're getting from your coaching staff, from fans, from executives around the league, everybody who's saying nice things about you, Evan. You have absolutely deserved it up to this point. Well done on your part. I mentioned Scotty. Like I said, I'm not going to talk about him on this podcast. I'm also not going to talk about Jalen Green or Alperin Shengun or Usman Garuba or Josh Christopher, even some some young vet, quote-unquote talk with Kevin Porter Jr. I'm going to save all the Houston Rockets thought. I will do a massive... Houston Rockets deep dive on one of these upcoming podcasts sometime after the Thanksgiving holiday I will definitely have a special podcast planned to share more thoughts on the Houston Rockets guys so definitely stay tuned for that let's move along to the guy who burst out of the gate in his first two or three games looked like he was on his fast track to to winning rookie of the year if not certainly at least finishing in the top three of a rookie of the year ballot Chris Duarte For the Indiana Pacers, 32 minutes per game, 14.3 points, 4.4 rebounds, 2.1 assists, 43% shooting from the field, 40% from three-point range, almost 77% from the free throw line, excellent shooting splits, only 1.7 turnovers per game, almost a steal per game, and 11.6 PER, 53.1 true shooting percentage. Really not bad at all for a rookie, especially the three-point mark. You love to see that. 47th percentile in total offense, 34th percentile in total defense, 81st percentile on spot-ups, 45th percentile scoring out of pick-and-roll sets. Some of these numbers are a little concerning. 17th percentile on all jump shots. He's in the 0 percentile in isolation scoring. That's definitely an issue. But the 91st percentile finishing around the basket, 75th percentile on runners, 53rd percentile in catch and shoot shots, only the 6th percentile in all jump shots off the dribble. Now, I do love the patience he plays with in the offense and the acceptance of his role, even when he doesn't always get to shoot, he's tripped down the floor, never has poor body language when he doesn't get the ball, where he wants it to, to be able to shoot every single trip down the floor. Doesn't exude any negativity, seems to always have a good attitude on him, communicates well with his teammates. So I do like that much. But he hasn't been as lead of a creator off the bounce in the NBA up to this point in terms of jump shooting, but he's been awesome finishing around the basket as well as in the paint, going to a runner, like a highlight in some of the synergy metrics. He's been a willing movement shooter. He establishes himself well off the catch with sound mechanics. We knew he was a deadly spot up shooter in college, but it was the other flashes of contested shot making that had scouts questioning if he was a lottery talent or a mid delay first round pick. He has struggled some in in creating his own shot. He doesn't have a ton of burst. His handle's good, but it's not great. It doesn't really have that that level of wiggle to him as a perimeter creator. But there are some examples on film where he has been able to to, to separate off of a one-two triple pull-up and rise up and, and can the open jump shot from around the foul line, around the elbows. He does have that shot in his bag. It's more of a consistency thing for him. I think that will improve and get better in time in the NBA defensively he's smart he has active hands he plays up to his competition well because of his positional size guard he's rarely out of position on defense he'll get beat occasionally because he's not the quickest guy on the court laterally which was always a question evaluators had coming out of college he's helpful rotating and playing within the team concept communicating and helping to act as a rover or a defensive playmaker but he's not someone who will win his matchup consistently at the point of attack That's something that was also talked about when he was coming out of college. More of like an overarching theme or a point that I want to make with Duarte and this Pacers team. Like with him and Malcolm Brogdon in the same backcourt, are they a little redundant? Like Brogdon, Brogdon's a thicker guard. He's a little bigger. But in terms of their skill sets, they're both deliberate on offense. They can hit shots from all three levels. Yes, Brogdon's a better playmaker, a passer. And technically, off the bounce shooter at this stage, but Duarte doesn't even have a full year under his belt. We have plenty of film going back to Oregon, the type of shots that Duarte is capable of making. I actually like the little we've. I actually like the little we've seen Brogden decision make and set the table for others. Even going back to the summer league, Duarte, excuse me. I don't think there's a huge gap defensively there either. Duarte's on a rookie contract. I think I'd rather take a swing on somebody like Duarte and see what he might be and see what Brogdon might be available for on the open market. And maybe you look to plug in a more traditional point guard with this Pacers team next to Duarte next to Duarte, versus keeping Brogdon and his massive contract because there are multiple mouths to feed on the perimeter. You have Karis LeVert in and out of the lineup. You have Jeremy Lamb on the wing. There are other mouths to feed within this offense. And I think, Brogdon and Duarte, at least to me, they seem a little redundant. I think Duarte is definitely a really good long-term play, at least these next three years after this one, because he is on that rookie-skills contract. You'd imagine the extension he gets. He was a late lottery pick, so the extension's probably going to be fairly reasonable, even after this year, the next three years. I think the Duarte pick at this point has been a home-run pick for Indiana. I think a lot of people would agree that it's been a home-run pick for them. Many evaluators were scared to coin him as a lottery level talent because of his age. He was the oldest player coming out of this draft class. He was 24 years old, but he's been pretty good in the NBA and the troubling things that I've seen in terms of his efficiency, some of his numbers, there are things that I have plenty of examples I can go back to, to where he's done it before. So there is some doubt. There are some concerns, but I don't have any overwhelming concerns that he can't get back to more of the score than he was in college at Oregon. I think he's going to be just fine from here on out. So Josh Giddy, sixth overall pick in the draft by the Oklahoma City Thunder, 28.8 minutes per game, nine points per game, 6.6 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 37.1% shooting from the field, 25.6% from three-point range, 61.5% from the free-throw line. 1.2 steals per game, 0.6 blocks, 2.8 turnovers, a 12.1 PER, 42.5% true shooting. Giddy has been slightly above what I expected offensively. I knew he was a very capable passer, and he's had plenty of highlight moments with the around-to-back passes, the fakes, cross-court whips, no looks, etc. But that being said... The scoring repertoire that I always thought would be in question, at least early on in his career, has been just that. Eighth percentile in terms of total offense, 11th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets, 7th percentile scoring out of spot ups, 34th percentile in transition, 33rd percentile in isolation scoring, 14th percentile on all jump shots, 5th percentile finishing around the basket, 12th on catch and shoot looks, 9th on all jumpers off of the dribble. He's not a consistent finisher around the basket because he does struggle to bully his way deep enough to the rim at times and forces a high-arcing floater with limited touch, takes some tough pull-up jumpers inside the arc and doesn't have the consistency yet on his three-point shot to really serve as a threat unless he's wide open off the catch with enough time to set up. He does have a lot of positives out of the pick-and-roll game from a passing standpoint, could end up being the second-best pick-and-roll playmaker in this class behind Cade, when all is said and done, I'm definitely not going to rule out that fact. But the scoring out of those sets, again, he can rush himself a little bit. He's not always the most sound decision maker when it comes to the type of shots that he wants to get to off the bounce. He has all of the passing ability in the passing ability in the world. He can hit virtually any type of pass he wanted to make. He has special court vision similar to somebody like a LaMelo Ball who came into the league last year. I like everything that Giddy brings to the table from a passing perspective. And he's been a good rebounder on both ends as advertised because of his length and anticipation. He's definitely someone who can stuff a stat sheet. I mean, he's already doing that night to night in the NBA. He brings that anticipation with him or to the defensive end as well, playing passing lanes, getting steals to get his team running out in transition. Defensively, OKC has done well to have Giddy on positional matchups and not try to switch him often on wings and forwards with more size. Like Giddy's pretty much been a shooting guard up to this point. They, they've kind of had him matching up on more twos because when Giddy does get caught on someone bigger, he can be tossed around at this point physically. He can challenge shots at the rim with his length and isn't afraid to do so. He's aggressive on defense when he has to be, but it's not his strong suit yet. And has much more of a chance trying to go up against a smaller player. Um, even that though was a mismatch because he he doesn't have the quickest feet laterally either. and He can struggle to keep his man in front of him at times. I've said some good things about Giddy's defense. I've said some bad things about Giddy's defense. I'm not going to completely bury him. I know some people in the media have just flat out said Giddy is horrific on defense. I'm not going to do that because um, uh, the, in the few games I've been able to watch of Giddy with Oklahoma State, I, I have seen some positives and I've seen some negatives, just like I outlined, but I'm not going to completely bury the kid. I won't bury the kid offensively either. Um, I think we're really going to find out how good Giddy is within the next two to three years. Once he's had more time to physically mature, get enough work in on his jump shooting, and craft better defensive awareness and technique to where he doesn't get completely lost off the ball. We'll find out just how high his ceiling is. Like, don't get me wrong. It's high if everything comes together. But there are likelier outcomes to where he is that Joe Ingles type of forward. That scenario was talked about heavily before the 21 draft. Who is a mainstay rotation player or starter for a lengthy career in the league, but maybe not quite as valuable as you'd expect the return to be on the sixth overall pick in the draft. And that's fine. I think Oklahoma City wanted to bring in somebody with great size for his position, who understood how to play a game of basketball offensively, who could make others around him better, who could just be someone they could put in the starting lineup to better accentuate some of the talent they have in there right now and play off of them better, like Shea, like Luke Dort, like Baisley. Somebody who could just come in fill a role and fit in. And I think they definitely have that in giddy. There's more upside to be tapped into. If he does become a special score and a better defensive player, then like I said, the upside's still really high. The sky could be the limit for him. I'm not going to bet on him being a star level player. Like some wanted to anoint him after his first few good games for the Oklahoma city thunder. He had some really good outings in the preseason. He got off to a strong start for the regular season, but he definitely came falling back to earth from an efficiency standpoint, from a shooting standpoint. His shot is not there yet. I want to see it get there. I think it could get there from a set shooting standpoint, from a spot-up standpoint. I don't know how much he's going to be able to do off of the move. I don't know how much you actually want to have Giddy operating off of movement. I don't know how much you want him being a pull-up type of scorer. I don't know how much you want him trying to score in traffic. I don't know how much you actually want him doing these things, which is all the more reason why the role-player label may be more appropriate for for Giddy in the long run. So let's close out this podcast with two rookies for the Orlando Magic, Jalen Suggs and Franz Wagner. We'll start with Jalen Suggs, 28 minutes per game, 11.3 points, 3.3 rebounds, 3.5 assists. 31% 31% shooting from the field, 20% from three-point range, 837 from the free-throw line. Some pretty scary shooting splits when you look at them at face value. 0.8 steals, 0.4 blocks per game, three and a half turnovers per game. That's pretty high. A 5 PER and a 41.8 shooting percentage. I said at the top of this podcast some of the numbers are going to get ugly, folks. 7th percentile in total offense. Yes, 7th, not 70th. 83rd percentile in total defense, 19th percentile scoring out of spot ups, 16th in transition scoring, 14th in isolation scoring, 3rd in third percentile in pick and roll scoring, 10th percentile in pick and rolls including passes, 9th percentile in isolations including passes, 9th percentile on jumpers, 11th percentile around the basket, 21st percentile in catch and shoot shots, and the 2nd percentile, all jump shots off the dribble. Yeah, not great offensive numbers, folks. Um, Jalen Suggs has definitely had a rough go of it from from a scoring and a shooting standpoint. But let's talk about the defense first, as that has been a major bright spot for him. As I mentioned, um, 83rd percentile in terms of total defense, 93rd percentile defending in pick and roll, 76th percentile defending off screens, 64th percentile defending spot-ups, 87th percentile defending jumpers, 76th percentile defending around the basket. So... Similar to what I'll talk about with Wagner, Suggs has been excellent defensively in a bunch of different scenarios. Very good pick and roll defender. Can guard off the on the ball as well as off of it. He's competitive closing out on jump shots. He helps to contest at the rim, denies the ball, denies the baseline. You name it, Suggs has likely shown some sort of example of it. His intensity during the game, the pace he plays at, all of that is carried over from gonzaga for for better or worse and what do i mean for better or worse well obviously you love to see that intensity boil over in the league but his foul rate is essentially identical to what it was in college and and that was a gripe of mine for him at gonzaga he was a little over aggressive with his hands got a little too handsy on defense got him in foul trouble when he gets in foul trouble he's got to go sit on the bench he doesn't even get a chance to continue to make an impact on the defensive end. He doesn't get a chance to create open shots for others on offense or get everybody out in transition off of a turnover he forced defensively. Doesn't have a chance to get some of those jump shots up, get better repetition, get more comfortable taking some of those shots. If he's sitting on the bench, he's not doing himself or his team any good. So yeah, he gets the extra foul in the NBA, but he can still be a tad over aggressive at times and. Could definitely behoove him to to reel it in a little bit and play better defense with his feet and his quickness, not just his hands. Um, Offensively, like I said, we'll we'll call it much more of a mixed bag. He's shown a few flashes, dropping pocket passes out of pick and roll. But for the most part, he's actually been a pretty poor pick and roll guard. He's displayed tunnel vision at times of one-on-one situations. Hasn't been the best at recognizing the double has thrown a number of errant passes leading to turnovers and hasn't been an effective shooter and scorer overall. He's not taken a ton of batter force shots within the offense, though. He hasn't only looked to crash into defenders around the basket as much as he did in college, which is fine. But in turn, when trying to dial back some of that aggression, at least in that aspect of his game, it's limited him to try to lean into drawing more fouls at this level as well. He's averaging less free throw attempts per game for the Magic than he did at Gonzaga. I believe the number for the Magic this year is 3.1 free throw attempts per game so far. number for Gonzaga was 3.8 free throw attempts per game. So definitely a decrease. That's That's not good. Best way for young guys to up their scoring numbers, better their scoring efficiency is to get to the free throw line, draw fouls, Look to draw contact more often than just crashing in and seeing what happens around the basket. That was a big complaint that some people did have for Suggs offensively, myself included. I echoed that sentiment. Whether that's something that can be taught and improved upon in the NBA, it can be, but it's not easy to do so. So we'll see within the next few years if Suggs is able to master that a little better. Obviously, his game is a work in progress offensively, but when he's able to get out in the open court, when his jumpers are falling, the outlook. Doesn't look nearly as bad as some of the numbers paint the picture being. And I think Cole Anthony's breakout as a pick and roll guard and as a star guard, star level guard, I should say, overall, I wouldn't classify him as a star quite yet. I think that's been a big positive, taking some pressure off of Suggs in time. He is likely more of a two than a full-time one and shouldn't have all the table setting responsibilities within the offense. At the same time, that argument was Already made well before the 2021 draft took place, but it never deterred me from seeing Suggs as a guard with a ton of upside. His mentality, his motor, defensive moxie, and his willingness to at least try and make things happen offensively are all things he's shown in the NBA and why I liked him so much before the draft. He'll get more consistent in scoring from all three levels, and I believe his decision-making in design sets will also come around because it does have some passing chops to him, as we saw multiple times. At Gonzaga, by the way, yes, I will do a follow-up piece eventually on Cole Anthony. Trust me, that piece is coming soon. Not that I need to tout the Draft Deeper brand in any further way, shape, or form, but I do want to say some positive words about Cole Anthony because I jumped on criticizing him immediately during Summer League this past year when I saw him out in Vegas. He was horrific at times. He was losing... His ability to sit and rest behind Suggs and R.J. Hampton, that definitely didn't give me positive vibes. So I came out and said it on this podcast. Cole Anthony had to come out and have a big year this year. He needed to prove that he could be a mainstay guard in that rotation, that he was a starting caliber point guard for that team, or I really thought that he was in jeopardy and danger of losing his job with Orlando and he might find himself on a second team at some point this year. Clearly that's not going to happen anymore so I do want to give Cole Anthony a lot of praise. Now is not the time though, because we're talking about rookies and we'll finish off this podcast with one of his other rookie teammates, Franz Wagner, 32 minutes per game, 13.4 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, 1.9 assists, 44 and a half shooting from the field, 37.1% from three point range, 76% from the free throw line, 1.4 steals per game. 1.1 turnovers per game, 13.4 PER, 53.7 true shooting percentage. Listen, it's clear that the Magic have a lot of trust in Wagner defensively, given his reputation in college. They'd like to already have him on the other team's best perimeter player, most notably in the last game I watched, um, or against the Atlanta Hawks. They, they had him on Trey Young as Trey was bringing the ball to the floor that immediately stuck out in my mind, the level of responsibility that they trust Fogner with. And he is a very capable defender on switches. He seems to be able to guard one through three and possibly even handle the power forward spot after another year or two of physical development. Doesn't have the quickest feet in the world, but he anticipates his man's movements very well. He uses his length to help contain his man, but plays defense with his feet and hips as he should to funnel his matchup where he wants them to go, which is very impressive for someone his age. I'll read off some of the synergy defensive numbers. He's 98th percentile defending off screens and handoffs, 88th percentile defending pick and roll sets, 52nd percentile defending spot ups, 76th percentile defending jumpers, 80th percentile defending around the basket. Those are a massive collection of positive defensive indicators for Franz Wagner. Does he have all defense potential? It's a little crazy to say, given how early we are in his career. I think he actually does. He already rates down the 89th percentile in terms of total defense, like I mentioned. I know he has Carter and Bamba on the front line with him right now to, to funnel and help protect the rim, but he defends incredibly well off screens and handoffs. He's really good in pick and roll defense and contesting jumpers, which are all metrics that speak to how good of a defender he actually is because they're as reliant upon him to do his job as the big man or the helper in some of those actions. Now, as the evaluation said, offensively, he's not going to wow you with what he does on that end, but he's incredibly solid at doing what he can do best, which is nailing open jumpers, cutting the basket and finishing around the rim on straight drives. He's a surprisingly capable pick and roll scorer and passer which isn't something I thought would show itself this early in his career. He looks to score when called upon, but doesn't force anything within the offense and is perfectly comfortable sticking to his role and doing whatever the team needs to win basketball games. Point blank period. By efficiency metrics, he's without a doubt been one of the better rookies so far in the class. Just to revisit some of his offensive numbers, 81st percentile in pick and roll scoring, 69th percentile in spot ups. 65th percentile on cuts, 46th percentile on transition scoring, 79th percentile in pick and rolls, including passes, 80th percentile on jumpers, 30th percentile scoring around the basket. That can definitely be improved upon, but 65th percentile on catch and shoot jumpers. A lot of those metrics are 60 or above. That's incredible for any rookie. A lot of rookies, as I mentioned on previous podcasts, fall anywhere between the 25th to 45th percentiles on the majority of their metrics on both ends of the floor, which are generally considered average to below average, which is perfectly fine for a rookie getting his first experience, especially within the first few months of their NBA debut season. I don't know how good of a player Franz is going to be a few years from now, but that comment's actually meant to be taken positively. Like if he continues to show more of the handle a little more craft and comfort operating off the bounce becomes more consistent on the open threes and continues to play the level of defense he has up to this point. That's one incredibly valuable basketball player to have at his size. I'll give the shout out to CJ Marchisani over at roll call. He came on this podcast before, and I've heard him talk on other podcasts about how high he was on Franz Wagner. Mikhail Bridges comparisons were very fluent in his discourse Chuck was also high on Franz. I was I was like middle of the road on Franz. I definitely viewed him as a tier 3 type of player, which I think that's ultimately going to be where he's classified somewhere between a first through fourth option during his NBA career, a definite starter. I just I I don't quite see star with him, but I'm not going to put a limit on someone who was one of the younger players in this draft class and despite being one of the younger players in this draft class, already had two years of college experience on top of overseas experience he had coming into the NBA. I'm not going to put a cap on that type of ceiling, so we will see how good Franz ends up becoming. No doubt he's been the Orlando Magic's best rookie up to this point. He's been one of the better rookies in this draft class. If I had to rank them, if I had to rank like a top three on a rookie of the year ballot up to this point, Not what I think is going to happen by year's end, but up to this point. I'd have Evan Mobley number one, Scotty Barnes number two. You could argue me into Scotty Barnes number one, but I have Evan here right now, even though he's going to be missing a few games because of injury. I have him number one here right now because of the team success. The Cavs are winning a bunch of basketball games. Not a lot of people expected the Cavaliers to be good. I was higher on the Cavs last year, I guess, a little earlier than I should have been. I just really liked the talent this team was starting to collect. I think that this team is massively talented, especially defensively. Once Okoro comes around more on the offensive end to warrant more playing time, you still have Sexton Garland in the fold. Jared Allen's one of the best pick-and-roll finishers and vertical lob spacers in the game. Larry Markinens uh, a very capable Starter or six man type of scorer, you still have Ricky Rubio, Jenny Osman. I love the makeup of this Cavs team and everything that we talked about with Mobley, how he impacts the game. It just makes everyone else's lives, lives around him that much easier. So I'll have Evan Mobley, one, Scotty Barnes, number two, and I'd probably have Franz Wagner, number three. He's been much more impressive than I thought he'd be in his rookie year. And we will leave this podcast at that. We won't go any further in prognosticating around a rookie of the year ballot. We'll save that for podcasts and written articles down the line for No Ceilings. Thank you all again so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you aren't subscribed already, make sure you subscribe to Draft Deeper wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Again, follow us on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Follow the No Ceilings account on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA. Make sure to subscribe to all the podcasts on the No Ceilings Podcast Network. Really easy to do so. Go to a mobile web browser. Type in linktr.ee slash NBA. That's our link tree. You will find all of our great podcast shows there. And then if you go to noceilingsmba.substacks.com, you will find all of our excellent written work. You can subscribe there. Plenty more content coming. I cannot wait. For some of the roundtables, some of the more combined pieces, we're going to be doing composite big boards, composite mock drafts, composite discussions on individual prospects. I cannot wait for all the content that's coming on that platform, so make sure you stay tuned. Stay tuned to this podcast as well. We'll only be doing one podcast next week. We'll be doing that podcast with Tyler, similar format to The Morning Dunk like we've been doing. And we will take a little bit of a holiday break. But when we come back from that holiday break, we're going to be rocking in full gear. I have plenty of podcasts with awesome guests planned outside of just the No Ceilings family. So stay tuned to this feed. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.